This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Recovery Radio. My name is Steve Martirano. Hope you'll stick around with us. Uh, a, a busy um, weekend, of course, with Father's Day staring us right in the face. So congratulations to all the dads listening. We thought we would use that occasion to bring you um, a look at the issue of substance abuse and recovery, successful sobriety in the context of fatherhood. That's the topic on Recovery Radio today, Dads in Recovery. I hope you'll spend some time with us on this uh, Saturday evening. Uh, our guest is uh, on phone with us uh, from Northeast Philadelphia, where, where, he, uh, where he grew up, is Chris Connor. Chris joins us for two just wonderful reasons. First, he is uh, celebrating over three years of sobriety himself. And secondly, and uh, congratulations on this, Chris, uh, he's uh, going to celebrate his first Father's Day with the uh, birth of uh, his daughter, who is, I think, four months old. So we welcome Chris Connor to Recovery Radio. Hi, Chris. Did I get that right? Yes, you did. The baby's four months old? A little over four months. That's terrific. What, what, what is her name? Skylar Rose. Ah, lovely. Anyway, thanks for joining us. Uh, you, you heard, you know, what, what we want to discuss today because, uh, you know, the, it's never been easy to be a dad. I don't know that it's any harder now than, than it's ever been, but it's different. I mean, the role of fathers in their children's lives changes all the time. Uh, now we have, it seems like, new guidelines every couple of days on being a father. And uh, that's, as I said, you know, a tough thing. I remember when we left the hospital with my first uh, child, my daughter. You know, I couldn't believe they'd let me leave, my wife and I leave with a, a baby, and, and they didn't even give us an operating manual. There, <laughs> there, there were no, yeah, there, there, there's no coaching. There was no uh, instruction booklet that came uh, with, with uh, our first child. Uh, so that was daunting. When somebody is uh, balancing that and recovery, it, it makes for a pretty uh, challenging um life and lifestyle. So we're going to get into all of that straight ahead, but begin at the beginning and tell us about yourself. You, you're from the Northeast. Tell us about that. Um, I grew up in, you know, far Northeast Philadelphia. I didn't really have a broken family. My family was, you know, very tight knit, did everything for me growing up, whether or not that had a role to play in it. That's, you know, not really too sure. Never really put too much thought into it. Um, I wasn't handed everything, however, as I got older and, you know, started getting like eighth grade and stuff, you know, like the pot and everything started. And then as time went on, the parties and drinking and everything. And then as I became, you know, late teenage years, I was introduced to the whole pill scene, whether that was opiates or benzos or whatever, um, opiates. Opiates was my utopia. That that was my heaven. I, I honestly couldn't really tell you why. I guess I just I like the feeling. I I like it taking in me away from myself. If that makes any sense? Yeah, sure. It does. Um, so it, it started off as just you know recreational and just fun, and then as time went on, the more happened, the more I did. And then things started happening in life where, you know, I'd get in trouble or do something wrong, and my go-to started becoming the drugs. 
And then as that progressed, it became an addiction. Kind of ruined my life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, Chris, uh, Chris, what age are we talking about? You begin experimenting with uh, marijuana and drinking I, at what age? I, marijuana was, I was about 12, 13 years old. Yeah, yeah. And uh, at that point in time, your friends are doing it as well, and it's an old story. Uh, that's so, sort of a standard story where young people start out just curious and let's see what happens. But you, you, your thing accelerated quickly. So... When were you aware that, that you were doing it harder than maybe your friends were? Um, probably by the time I was about 15, like 14, 15, I guess. Yeah. So like a year or two after yeah. I realized, you know, like most normal people that smoke pot don't normally sell things for weed. <laughs> and that should have been like a a sign right there, like, okay, there's going to be a problem later on in life down the road here, but, you know. You mean you, mean you sold really. things to, to buy so you could buy marijuana? Yeah, like video games, you know, going to GameStop and, you know, getting ripped off by them, but it was money for pot. Right, right. right. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, at some other point, maybe we, we we can get into all that because people think that this is benign, this, this push towards legalization of marijuana. I mean, you sound like you were practically depended upon marijuana very early on, right? You had to have marijuana. Is that the way it felt? Now that I look back on it, yes. Yes. At the time at the time frame and everything, no, of course not. But, however, me as an addict, like my, my personality, like I said, with going and selling stuff for pot, that's, a, that's an addict's personality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You well, know, like them signs were there. And I just never capitalized or realized anything on it, you know. Yeah, what, what was the impact around the house? Do you have siblings? Um, I had a little. I have a little brother. However, I was always back and forth. Like, um, I grew up mainly with like my grandparents for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom had my little brother, and the only time like I went back and forth, and that was mainly because of me getting in trouble. I'd be with my grandparents, I'd get in trouble at school or do something messed up and, you know, run in with the cops or whatever, and I'd get sent to my mom's, go to my mom's for a little bit, same outcome, I'd go back to my grandparents, and it was just like a repeating process over and over. Right, this was the family's way of trying to cope with what was going on, and they certainly recognized that you had a substance problem, didn't they? Yeah, years, years down the road, yes. So it wasn't right away. I mean, the, the behavior early on looked like just your normal teenage. Uh, just normal a teenager being a teenager, you know. Yeah, and even though it may have been too much for your mom or your grandparents, uh, there there it was. So th- this accelerated uh, use and substance abuse goes from where marijuana to you said what pills next, and ultimately yeah. the heroin. Yeah. H- how did you? How are you getting this? These drugs. What were you doing to? you know, get the money besides selling your, your video games. Um, as a kid, like with the pot and stuff, just like any normal kid, like, you know, Hey, can I get 20 bucks to go to the mall? Or, you know, can I have a couple of dollars to do this? My grandmother, when I was younger, was real big on, well, mainly my grandfather actually was real big on never leave the house without money in your pocket in case something happens to where you need it, whether it's to get home or whatever. 
So, God forbid, thank God nothing ever happened because all my money was going to pot either way. <laughs> yeah, you know, a yeah. classic case of uh, thinking that you're doing the right thing as a, as a, you know, an adult, but actually just enabling this disease. Well, who introduced exactly. who introduced you to harder stuff, opioids? Friends, um, strangers, what? No, it was definitely friends. Definitely friends. I, I honestly don't remember who exactly. Like mm -hmm. I, I. I couldn't tell you the first time that I took an opiate and like fell in love. Really? How how you know, long like did I, how long did that be? Uh, did the use of opiates last for you? Um, probably like ten years total. Really? However, it was probably like eight years straight. Because like I got sober for two years and then I relapsed. Yep, yep, yep. So, during the, during this period, during this uh, run up to really serious serious substance abuse, did your friends change? Did you gravitate towards people doing what you were doing? Um, all uh, we all kind of graduated into the higher stuff like together, I guess. So. All, all my friends that I was using with or getting high with were childhood friends I've known like my entire life mm -hmm. that we hung out on an everyday basis for, you know, 15 plus years. Mm -hmm. We How all just kind of yeah, took no, that same route together. Mm -hmm, you know? mm -hmm. Yeah, that sort of normalizes the whole thing. If everybody's doing the same thing, it can't be that unusual. Uh, yeah. That first trip into rehab, how did you get there? Under what circumstances? It's kind of forced. Um, and it was just, my family just had enough, you know, finally came, came to light. Like at that point, my first treatment in the rehab, I was, uh, I had already graduated to shooting dope. So I was, you know, doing it by IV and when it came to light, like, that that was happening in my life, and that's what I was doing. That's when they finally saw, I guess, this is a major problem. We need to get him somewhere. So, yeah. And it was either you do this or this is the outcome. And, okay, I'll go to treatment for a couple of days, come home, and you guys will never know I'm back to doing it again. <laughs> no, that was your mindset going in? I'll, just to get them to get off your back, I'll go do this? Yes. That was completely yeah. your motive. Yes. Yeah, well, we know how successful that was. How Your first stint at, or wasn't even a, a try at rehab. How long did that that sort of fake treatment uh, last for you? Um, I mean, I came home and used probably that same day. Um, it probably took like, a, you know, a couple of weeks, give or take, for my family to start realizing that, you know, this didn't work again. How many times altogether in and out of treatment, Chris? I've been to seven different treatment centers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I always tell people when they hear stories like that, um, yeah, it, it's uh, it's grim. It's not always the case, but folks keep trying. Uh, why did you keep going back? To, were, you, were you always going back to rehab because of press, outside pressures, or, or were you doing it at some point for yourself? Um. The only time I honestly did it for myself was the time I had got like got sober and was sober for that two years before my relapse. That was honestly like the only time where it was a hundred percent my decision. 
Chris Conner is our guest. He joins us on this Father's Day weekend to talk about his uh, successful sobriety now, his new family, which is growing with the introduction of a brand new baby. And um, he's going to talk about his role as uh, a dad in recovery. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. My name is Steve Martirano. We're here on Saturdays. We talk about the disease of addiction. The whole thing is sponsored, incidentally, by Retreat, Premier Addiction Treatment Centers. We'll have a lot more about the good, good stuff they do. Uh, it's Father's Day weekend, obviously. Again, congratulations to the dads out there. It's sort of the theme of this, uh, fathers and recovery. To that end, Chris Connor has been speaking with us. Chris is a uh, fellow from the Northeast, a substance abuser for many years during uh, his uh, uh, youth, and uh, now over three years sober and a brand new dad. We're, we're going to explore all those issues with Chris straight ahead. Uh, Chris, uh, before we took the break, you, you explained that run-up to your first of many stints in uh, treatment. The, the most successful you were at any period of time with sobriety was for two years, correct? Yes. Uh, what, what happened during the two years as you look back that had you uh, slip, slip back again? Um, for, for a while, I, it was an excuse, honestly, just like most, most relapse stories. Um, I had a couple of tooth extractions done and normally I'd go in places, you know, I tell them no narcotics for no, no matter what it was. And I did tell this dentist, you know, no narcotics. And he was like, so, so pressed on prescribing me something. And he said, look, I'll just give it to you. If you want to take them, that that's your call. And unfortunately, I made the decision like, okay, I'll get it filled just in case. And I ended up taking them, and it was off to the races. Off to the races. Now, I, I used that. I, to me, it was just an excuse just to do what I enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure the same outcome would happen if I did that today. Yeah. However, I've been down that road now and realize uh, it's probably not the best idea. Yeah. <laughs> What, what, what uh, you know, relapse is, uh, is um, unfortunate, and like a lot of aspects of the disease of addiction, not well understood from the outside, people think it's a, you know, a moral failure, or you're, you know, a slacker, and you, or you like being high too much. What were your feelings after you had, in effect, given up on two years of sobriety? Were you feeling, uh, what were you feeling? Yeah. Um, honestly, I really didn't care. I, you know, I was doing what I like to do. So it, at the time, that's what was making me happy until a couple weeks in where I was right back to where I was to begin with. It just happened so much quicker. Yeah, without any sense of, oh boy, am I messing up? No, yeah. not, not really. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it crossed my mind and it just got brushed off to the side like... You know, it is what it is. You only live once kind of thing, mm-hmm. and might as well do what makes me happy. And yeah, it makes you happy, but for how long? How, Until how it starts ruining your life. <laughs> how soon after the um, the prescribed painkillers were you back shooting, um, you know, opiates? Um, Probably the day after the bottle was, the bottle of painkillers were gone, honestly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, when, once they were gone, you know, 
they were gone within a day. So the next day, basically, I was like, okay, I'll, I'll go do this, and I'll just uh, I'll do a half of half a bag, and everything will be okay, and that'll be it. I'll have my fun, and I'll stop. But you know that never happens. <laughs> Those are the deals you make, right? I'll only do this, and it'll get me to there, and I'll be okay, right? Yep. Well, when you were sober for the two years, was it difficult for you to remain? Was it a struggle every day? Did it come easily? Um, it wasn't like extremely hard. However, when you're when you're sober, it's something you deal with for the rest of your life. Like that, there will always be them days that are rough, and you have them thoughts. It's just a matter of learning and knowing how to cope with it the right way instead of going back out. Yeah. So, so you had what you would what you would describe as a couple of years of pretty successful um, uh, sobriety. Yes. Yeah. Um, and th- this this notion that you you know you're you're going to make a deal with with the substance that you're abusing and only do this much and you're able to constantly convince yourself that you you've got this under control. That's a lot of people don't understand. How could you not know you were out of control, or were you just kidding yourself? Um, I was basically just kidding myself, you know, and when I was doing, doing things, knowing that it was out of control and just convincing myself and other people that that wasn't the case. Were, were you, uh, working at that time? Did you have a job? Were you in school? What was it? What was your situation? Um, I'd work on and off. Actually, I was in a trade school when my opiate addiction actually started to get bad. You know, that's when I started with the opiates, really, and it was with Oxycontin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was in school at the time, and a guy at the school always had them, so I, you know, I'd go to school, I'd get them from him, I'd do them at school, I'd go home, get them from somebody in the neighborhood, and it was just an all-day occurrence, right. you know. Right. Basically, you were defining yourself through the drug use. That's that's the only thing that you were. You yeah. were someone who used drugs. Yes. What got you to uh, rehab the final time over three years ago um, that's resulted in your sobriety now? Was that also under duress, or did you f- finally just go, I need to do something for myself? Um, For this, the final time, like the last time I used and got sober, you know, three years ago, whatever, um, I actually didn't go to treatment. I actually went to jail. Okay. And that was, that was basically my rehab. That's where I, you know, sobered up and was like, you know what, enough's enough. This is it. Take a moment. That was my second rock bottom. Yeah. Can you, can you, can you take a moment to describe when you say you got sober in jail, did, were, were you, were you given treatment there or was this just a straight up uh, white knuckle thing? No, it was just straight up white knuckle. Um, I had, I'm, I'm already on probation. I've been on probation for like the past four years. Um, I ended up getting caught, you know, getting my drugs. And they were watching the block that I was on getting it from. And I was a part of a sting that they were doing. I got arrested and it was a violation of my probation. So, so now you're I back got in sent jail. off to jail. Yeah, yeah. How hard is it to get drugs in prison? Not hard at all. Um, actually, I was in there, and less than 24 hours, I was, you know, dope sick, 
and drugs were right there. So I continued to do drugs for the next week and a half <laughs> until I actually got caught and was sent to the hole, and that's when I sobered up. We'll uh, return to our guest in just a second, though. A reminder of how this whole thing is possible. Uh, retreat Premier Addiction Treatment Centers are fellows I've known uh, even before they became involved in this program. And uh, when the opportunity presented itself for the retreat to sponsor Recovery Radio, they uh, enthusiastically said, yes, we want to get involved. And they made it clear from the beginning that they agreed this had to be more than an infomercial. Are they paying the freight here? Sure they are. Are they a world-class, renowned treatment facility? Yes, they are. But uh, they're here as an informational tool. They want you to know more than anything, that help is out there. So when I give you the retreat phone number, find out about what if, if you have questions about, about your treatment or treatment you need or someone you know, they'll just answer those questions. If it turns out they're the people that can help you, well, uh, you couldn't be in better hands. That's not why we give you the number, no. Though we give you this number so in hopes that you never have to use it. But it, but it could be a um, very significant difference if the disease of addiction visits you or your family. 855-859-8808. Retreat Premier Addiction Treatment Centers. 855-859-8808. Chris Conner's been with us on this Father's Day weekend to talk about his sobriety. He's three, over three years sober now and celebrating, um, celebrating that event in conjunction with the birth of his daughter a couple of months back. She's now... Uh, four months old. So, you know, Chris is going to be juggling a couple of very significant things in his life. Obviously, his his sobriety and now his uh, his role as a as a dad. Uh, Chris, during your drug use, when when did you meet uh, Brittany? Is is the the mother of the baby uh, and your significant yeah. other? Um, when did you meet Brittany? Um, I met her actually my first time around of being sober. Before I had relapsed. Okay, you didn't you didn't meet in in rehab or anything. She she was not using at the time, or she was. No, actually, when when I met Brittany, she's what you so call call like a normie, a normal person who right. could go to a bar and drink a half a beer, put it down, and not touch it for the rest of the night. Mm-hmm. You know, where as me, I go and take one sip, and it's all to the races. Did she? How how soon after you guys started seeing each other did she recognize that you know you were you were different? You had a problem. Um, she knew right off the bat. Um, normally, I that's one of the things. Whether it's with jobs or meeting a girl or anyone else, it's normal. One of the first things I tell people off the bat. I, I'm not ashamed of anything I've done. I don't regret anything I've done. It made me who I am today. Only thing I regret is the people I hurt. So when I first met Brittany, that was one of the first things I told her, you know, when we were starting to tell each other about ourselves was, you know, I look like I'm in recovery. I don't drink. I don't smoke pot. I don't do anything. You know, I smoke cigarettes. But that, that's about it. So, so I, I make sure that's clear. I got it. So you 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 met Brittany when you were when you were sober and. And and staying sober, but you were perfectly honest about your back about your background. Yes. And uh, s- subsequently, um, Brittany winds up with a problem. Correct. 
Yes. How did that come about? Um, she had a surgery going bad like years before we met, and that just brought on so many issues every year for her. You know, it was ongoing to where she was having like one or two surgeries each year. Really? And then, yes. Yeah. And, and then, um, she ended up having a surgery where, you know, she was getting pain meds just like all the other ones, except it just caused an issue this time around. Well, so you're sober when she's, when she, uh, f- f- you know, b- begins getting the pain medication for the surgeries. You, you certainly are familiar with that with that phenomenon. Would you, what, yeah. what, 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 were, what was your role in this? Were you trying to stop her? What, what was going on? Um, in the beginning, no, because you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, of course, I'm against you know abuse on pain medication. Though they do serve a purpose for those who don't have a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said, I had that addic- addictive personality. Most, a lot of people out there don't have that addictive personality who can take the pain meds as prescribed, and then once it's done, that's it. And that's how she was for the longest time. You were hoping that that's who so she... I didn't think... Yeah. You were... I didn't think anything of it. Right. When did you recognize so I, When did you recognize she had a problem? Um, when she stopped getting the prescriptions, and I could tell that she was still doing something. Like, I've been around the block way too many times to not notice something's off with somebody when it comes to drugs and stuff like that, you know. Uh, did you confront her over this? I confronted her, yes, and she went to treatment. I talked to her, and, you know, we talked. She went to treatment, came home, relapsed again, and I noticed it, like, right away, confronted her, went to treatment again, came home, relapsed again, and I was actually at work, and her mom is actually the one who packed her bags and sent her away when she was pregnant for continuing to get high. And so, I didn't find out till I got home. So Brittany was, so you, you, you're, you're maintaining your sobriety. She's relapsing and then she gets pregnant. Yes. How, 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 do you ever, have you ever pondered how uh, you managed to stay sober under all that stress? Um, it, it was definitely stressful. However, you know, like I said, I've, I've been around the block too many times to know, like, what it did to me in my life. And it completely ruined my life. Nobody wanted to be near me. My family didn't want me, whatever. I wasn't going to let it bring me back down. And on top of it, knowing that I'm about to have a beautiful little girl brought into this world, I, I sure as hell wasn't going to risk relapsing with a child on top of it, you know? Uh, you know, we, we uh, have done a, a show or two here on Recovery Radio about uh, pregnancy and substance abuse, and there's nothing more uh, just just tragic than as bad as the disease is when it affects just a, an individual, when it affects an unborn child, it's just um, a real heart, a real heartache. The um, Brittany went through the went through retreat. Uh, uh, is that right? Yes, where where they do they do a terrific job in 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 this area. What was I, your? What, I owe them. I owe them my life because it gave me my life now. What was your role in her life while she was both pregnant and trying to get sober? Um, it it was hard. Of course, it was definitely hard. That was the second hardest decision I've ever made in my life. First, being getting sober myself. Um, 
you know, like there was a lot of anger, a lot of arguments, but at the same time, I had I had to be that strong person. I had to be that backbone, or else we probably wouldn't be where we are today. Only because if I wasn't, and I you know went back down the same path as my history, at the same time she was while being pregnant. Who's to say? I mean, thank God it never happened. But my daughter might not be here, or could be with another family, or something like that, and. If I wasn't as strong as I was and didn't stick by her side the way I did, that was probably very well going to be the outcome. Your daughter was yeah. was born healthy, I take it? She she was 100% healthy. Um, she was actually two months premature, but she came out no withdrawals, not needing oxygen. It was just, you know, she was just premature. Now, what caused that? Nobody will ever yeah, know. Right. So, is it safe to say that the... The idea of fatherhood uh, focused your attention like nothing before. Yeah, it, yes, it, it definitely helped, and it, it definitely opened up my eyes to a bigger picture. I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, I never really thought thought like I, you know, of course, like I said, you still have them thoughts about getting high or relapsing, whatever. It's for me personally, that don't happen that often. It still happens, don't get me wrong. It just don't happen that often. Now when it happens, one of my first thoughts is my daughter. You know, what's going to happen to my family? You know, the family that I, that my, my new family, you know, my fiancé and my daughter, if, if I go back down that path. Well, so so many, it, it definitely helps keep me in line. Yeah, yeah. So many people have similar situations where you know children are in their lives um b- but it doesn't seem to stop them so I'm, I'm sure while your daughter um gave you a tremendous incentive to to stay sober um you you must have been working uh, pretty diligently on your own you know what i mean yeah i'm definitely um you know um i have my program you know i'm, I'm I do AA. I have a sponsor. I do meetings. I have sponsees myself. That's that's like the major part of my sobriety. That that's what keeps me sober. Now everybody everybody's not the same. You know what might, what works for me might not work for the next person. Do I highly recommend doing a program along their lines? Absolutely. But that's only because that's what saved my life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we don't want to give people the impression that that you're you're just sort of a lucky guy, and you don't you know you don't follow any particular guideline, and you're just you know you're maintaining sobriety. You you really work in this thing, right? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Is there any? There's no doubt. Is there any doubt in your mind that if you did not, if you weren't so vigilant about this, that you'd have a problem again? A hundred percent. I definitely would. You know, um, like I said, you know, I go back to it don't happen often, but I still have them thoughts. Last week was one of them times where I was having thoughts for two days, you know, and like it's probably like a day and a half. And they they were probably one of the strongest times like I've actually thought about using since I've been sober in the past three years. And the first thing I did, I, I looked at Brittany and I was like, look, you know, you, you, can can you be okay with the baby for a couple hours? I got to go to a meeting. 
you know. But that's just, you, you learn how to deal with it. You learn certain ways to cope with it. You know, and it, it maybe not so much be like the meeting itself that's going to help, but the group of people that I now surround myself with. You know, I'll go there, I'll go to the meeting, but it's a lot. A lot of the thing that helps me is the the stuff before and after the meeting, talking to people. I want to because nine out of nine out of ten times, somebody in that group been down the same road as you. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I want to pick. I want to pick up on 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 your your work now as a as a as a dad, a parent, uh, your relationship uh, with with Brittany, and um, as you say, as you work that program to remain uh, sober. Chris Connor, our guest on Recovery Radio, three over three years now uh, sober and a brand new uh, dad. His, uh, four month, his, his uh, brand new daughter is four months old, so this is um, a, a doubly special uh, weekend for, for Chris, as it is for lots of uh, fathers who are managing long-term successful sobriety and their role as um, a dad. So we thank Chris for his uh, candor so far and, and telling us his story of he and Brittany, both of whom struggled with substance abuse at different times in their relationship and are now the parents of this brand new baby, uh, which Chris gives a, a certain lion's share of credit maybe to focusing his attention on maintaining his sobriety. So, so Chris, you, you mentioned before we went to the break that you still have uh, thoughts of using and uh, now have the support of of uh, you know tw- the 12 steps i guess and the and the meetings and you have sponsors and where do those thoughts come from do they spring out of nowhere or uh, can you describe yeah, it, them it happens it happens at any given time there there's nothing really that could say i mean I, of course there's things that could set it off but me personally it it just just happens it just pops in my head i could be eating dinner or in the shower in the middle of a work day you know where i'm busy as can be doing something and it just hits me or i could sit there and some reason get like this weird like this smell and just automatically think like oh man that smells like dope or that smells like coke or you know whatever it might be and then my thoughts go from there so something something triggers it and is 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 the negative thought or, or the you know the thought about getting high again, is it accompanied by an actual craving or, or is it just the notion? It's just the notion. Um, I don't really, you know, I might have these thoughts and stuff. I can't exactly say that I crave it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I have in the past three years. However, it's been, it's been a decent period of time where I haven't actually craved doing anything, you know. You, you you say you have sponsors and you now sponsor people. Um, yes. When did you call? When you told when you told the story earlier of uh, the baby's now born, uh, Brittany, uh, the mom is eight months sober, and you're you're both sober. You've got this baby, but you're having some some bad. You're having a bad day, and you tell her I've, I've got to go talk to somebody. What did you do exactly? You called your sponsor. How did you manage that? Um. I did not, I, I didn't exactly call my sponsor. Um, I went, I just went straight to the meeting. Now, if that didn't help and it would have persisted, I definitely 100% would have called my sponsor. Yeah. You know, like I said, um, you, you find different ways to cope with it. Um, you know, I'll, I'll take my first step of 
going to the meeting, and then if that's not helping, now I'm contacting my sponsor. Yeah, yeah. So you're not making you know, this up as you go along. You you have a path that or a a, a, a program that you go through yes. in order to manage this thing. Yes. Yeah. And Brittany's feeling at that point was, go do what you have to do. I'll take care of the baby. Yep. Of course, she was 100% supportive. Mm -hmm. um, in, in meetings or people that you talk to who, as you say, been there, done that, is it helpful when they are also fathers or have had children and had to deal with, with the kind of thoughts you were having and have to deal with their sobriety while being dads? Have you had conversations with other, uh, other men in that regard? Oh, of course. Um, you know, not even just like with that aspect. Like, if there if there's anybody out there who isn't a father and is you know struggling with whatever it may be, you know, AA or NA or whatever program it is, they've been around for so many years. There's so many people involved with it that you wouldn't even think are involved with it. And out of all them people, you know, there there may be twenty, thirty plus people at, at a meeting you may go to there's at least one person there that's been through the exact same thing you have. Do you, are, do you or have dealt, dealt with somebody who's been through the exact same thing you have and may know certain ways to go about it? Yeah, w we've heard many stories uh, similar to this, and they each share many things in common, one, is w one of which is that it's a, it's a real eye-opener when you find out that there are other people who have been in exactly the spot you've been in. Um, were, were you surprised to find that out as well? Um, at first, you know, when, when I first had gotten sober and was first introduced to the program that I follow, yes. Mm. Well, uh, listen, I, I was think I was more surprised by the the more successful people who have you know these amazing jobs and everything else who you would right. just by meeting on the street would never know. Oh my God! You've been down the same road I have been. Right. These were not just people who were no longer abusing substances. These were people with full, successful, and happy and happy lives. Yes. Well, well, Chris, uh, you know, thanks so much. Congratulations on both your sobriety, you and Brittany, and uh, on Father's Day and the new baby. It's great. Um, what What do you most want for yourself and your and your and your daughter and your family now. What what's the one thing you most want? Just a happy, healthy life. You know, no struggles. My my biggest fear as being a parent is, of course, my child going down the same path we have. You know, but being a parent, all you can do is raise them the best you can and really hope for the best. You know, like I, me personally, I'll never hide anything from her. She will know a hundred percent my history and my problem, my previous problem. But you'll also know what I did to correct that and better my life for both me, my family, my daughter, and everyone else. Well, Chris, great. Um, uh, continued success, obviously. Um, keep the baby in mind all the time, and happy Father's Day. Thank you so much. Chris Connor, our guest on Recovery Radio. The topic today, of course, uh, dads in recovery for all the obvious reasons to the fathers that are out there. Um it's not, it's not easy for anybody, right? Um, happy Father's Day, and uh, we'll see you next week on Recovery Radio. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.